for Cover to Cover Open Book. Welcome. This is Nina Serrano, your host today for Open Book. Today's guest is going to be Richard Register, a theoretician and activist in the environmental movement. His new book is called Eco Cities, and it's about rebuilding cities in balance and nature. Register says of this book, Eco Cities, I wanted to offer people the chance to enter my mind of imagery and ideas, and now I have a publisher who agrees that my drawings are indeed an interesting and helpful world. I hope that my book will open your imagination up to a far better world we can create, one in balance with all the other life on earth. Imagine being on a terrace of a building, looking out over the stunning views of the bioregion and getting to know its trees, bushes, vines, flowers, fish, birds, and insects. Imagine children fascinated by all the life currently missing in the cities we're building now for cars instead of them. And that's Richard Register talking about his own book, Eco Cities, Rebuilding Cities in Balance with Nature. And he's here with us today. Welcome, Richard, to Cover to Cover. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure, Nina. Uh, why have you called your book and your organization Eco Cities? Well, we're interested in ecologically healthy cities and the impact of cities and towns and villages. In other words, the built habitat of houses. Uh, villages and cities and towns on the entire environment and the quality of living in such places is the quality of life there, ecologically healthy or not. And so that has become uh, kind of an obsession with me, I guess you'd say, ever since about 1965. And I've been studying and working on the subject ever since and have become quite convinced that we definitely need to redesign our cities in a fairly fundamental way. What brought you to writing this particular book which is now in its second edition well there's two things really i grew up as an artist in new mexico i loved the place very much and uh and liked making sculpture and at a certain point began thinking of architecture as a sort of a sculptural uh, world that was very similar to what i was very pleasurably involved in on the other hand, I also was right across from Los Alamos, New Mexico, and was very concerned by humanity's inhumanity and the production of the atomic bomb, and my family had friends over there who were scientists designing these things. And so I had a very tenuous sense about life being very delicate and very valuable and being assaulted by some gigantic mistakes that human beings seem to be making. And then as I began looking around in the 60s at the enormous impact of automobiles and sprawl development, addiction to oil, the reasons uh, for going to war for oil, uh, and so on, I began to feel that, you know, the city itself is something with an enormous demand there. The city itself is something that expresses our humanity or our lack of humanity, depending upon what we're building. Is the city beautiful? Does it have nature in it? Is it full of life? Uh, is it exploitive? Is it paving the universe? What is it really doing? Turns out we have millions of choices. The city could be almost any way we imagine it. And in fact, as you look around the world, it is radically different from one place to another. Well, in the particular times we live in now, it seems as though we have to get that straightened out. And we have to get the beautiful together with the meaningful and we have to protect life and 
Oddly enough, the biggest element in that is the biggest things we make. Maybe that's not so odd. It sounds sort of logical. But the largest things human beings create are the cities, towns, and villages, the built infrastructure that we all live in. And if we continue building them for cars and oil, uh, I don't think we have much of a chance. Climate's changing. Species are disappearing. And we're going to be running out of cheap energy fairly soon without having built a system that can run on more rare and uh, more expensive energy, which is what we're going to have to do with solar or wind or some other form like that. So it's a very crucial set of issues, and I kind of stumbled into it because I was interested in the arts and was upset by what was happening where I was growing up uh, relative to paving over the countryside. Well, I know you've done a lot of work in uh, Berkeley, for example. What about the city of Berkeley? How How do all of your ideas about a new city apply here and how have they applied? Well, in 1987, I actually wrote a book about Berkeley. It was called Eco City Berkeley, Building Cities for a Healthy Future. And many ideas were played out there. And in this more recent book, fortunately, they printed many, many more pictures, which I love drawing, by the way. And uh, the I guess you'd say that to bring nature back into the city, to reshape the city so it's walkable is the real key. If you can have pedestrian transit centers that are being built up with time, if you can have larger buildings and clusters that serve lots and lots of people that are right there next to transit, that have creeks right next to them, that have public plazas, I'm convinced you'd have a really beautiful place that people would enjoy very much. So I see a lot of how to transform Berkeley as other cities is simply finding their centers, making the centers more lively, adding more pe- more people in those centers, and making the centers much more car-free and pedestrian-oriented. Well, is that a, a problem here in Berkeley right now about the downtown? I think it is. Oh, definitely. It's uh, The city is swamped in cars, and people pretend that it's a cozy little town, and in some ways it really is. But the reality is also that it's an extremely automobile-dependent town, not as much, say, as San Ramon or or Concord, or places that are very far from the centers, but we happen to be lucky to live right here next to, uh, in a rather low-density mode, most of the people in Berkeley, right next to a university and a downtown that's pretty vital, that has good transit and so on. So we have a lot of good things going for us here, but the city is frankly quite automobile-dependent and has no car-free streets at all. You find in Europe now, and you find in quite a few American cities and all around the world. Uh, We have conferences all around the world, by the way, so I've traveled rather immensely in the last 15 years. And there are many places where there are car-free areas. Berkeley doesn't have any. So we could start moving in this direction, I think, in a very positive way. By the way, uh, I think it's important to note that almost all ecological city issues are social justice issues. For example... If you support more housing downtown, then it makes it possible for people to live without having to buy an automobile, gasoline, uh, create all that demand for the fuel that helps cause the wars in the Middle East and so on. You can actually provide for people to live uh, near transit if you build for them. If you don't build for them, you, of course, can't have them there. And so they have to find other places and often end up with their automobiles and their problems because of that. You mentioned uh, the many conferences that your organization, EcoCities, has done around the world. What have some of them been, and what are they uh, projecting for the future? 
Well, we've had them here in Berkeley. The first International EcoCity Conference was in 1990 with 775 people involved in the conference. The second was in Adelaide, Australia, then Senegal, West Africa, then uh, Curitiba, Brazil, which is probably the world's best model of a city for various projects and policies having to do with ecological solutions. Then we went on to Sinchin, China, and in four weeks we're going to be in Bangalore, India. And among those, the one in West Africa was just wonderful. It focused a lot on on uh, villages as well as cities and this, the, the parallels between village life and city life and, and the structure of the two, the design and the planning of the, the different scales. And it was wonderful to actually stay there and live with, uh, with the people in the village for two weeks and have this conference with all the cultural things that went along with it, the dancing till late at night and the drumming and so on. Uh, we all got sick, but we all got over it right away, too, somehow. And uh, it was just uh, a wonderful cultural experience looking also at the uh, environmental issues. But we've we've had many. The one in Curitiba was quite amazing because Curitiba really did get its land use pattern together with the transit system. In other words, they built five long arms of uh, dedicated bus line, which means that the buses can go there and nobody else can. You don't have cars interfering with your bus traffic on these main arterials in Curitiba. And they allowed rather large buildings to be built along the side of them. The developers made money. There was plenty of housing for people next to cheap transit. And for the equivalent of about 45 cents in American money, people could get anywhere in the entire city very rapidly on a, on a system that runs about 40 miles an hour. You know, pretty fast to get in the buses down there and move around. So because they had the land use pattern based around transit and centers of development, many of them pedestrian centers, they saved enormous amounts of land in which they planted millions of trees. By the time I was there in the year 2000, when we had the conference, we had over seven, they had over 7 million trees planted in the last 20 years, uh, bringing the forest back. So the forest had been denuded for, um, for ranching before that. And then they have great recycling there. Uh, when the floods come, the waters go up. A little bit of water floods into the, the uh, parks, lays down a little bit of silt, which helps fertilize the soil. Water goes down. Nobody gets hurt. So they've, they've done a lot of very intelligent things, starting from the first step, which was to uh, arrange the land use pattern and the architecture so that it would work for, for all those ecological benefits. I wanted to ask you two things about that. One, I didn't catch where you said that city was. In Brazil. In it's Brazil. near Sao Paulo in uh, Brazil. And then you said how the developers were happy. Well, we see here in downtown Oakland, for example, a lot of building. but it uh, And it does put people next to all the BARTs and the buses. But those are all very high-priced uh, structures for people to buy into as either condos or, or rentals. They sure are. I can't afford it. I do live in downtown Oakland, but I live in a very old building. And uh, I think what Oakland needs, and it's been debated, and I don't know, they might even have decided this last Tuesday, to have inclusionary uh, zoning for lower-income housing. I think that's a very good idea, and I think Berkeley is, is good in that it provides 20% of the housing for uh, modest and lower income. Uh, I think that is a very important solution 
to, uh, to helping with that problem. The other thing you have to remember about development is that something new is always going to be expensive, fancy, stylish, one thing or another, or the builders of it are going to try to make it like that. For example, new cars. They look flashy. They cost a lot of money. And then they, as time goes by, they lose value fairly rapidly. Similarly, when you do build new housing, there is a problem with gentrification just to have new housing, period. It just tends to help the economy in the area. People flourish more. The rents go up and so on. So you really do need your your inclusionary zoning uh, set up so that you can bring people in at lower income. But then as time goes on, then the prices come down. The real problem in the Bay Area, I think, has been the refusal to build very much housing in the centers and forcing that housing essentially to move out into the outlying areas, which causes the entire the entire area to have very, very high housing costs. But if you're providing lots of housing, then, as in most uh, economies, the, the very high supply would mean that they would meet the demand better and it wouldn't be as expensive to live there. If you have a short supply of something in high demand, of course, the price goes way up. So the Bay Area has kept uh, very high demand by keeping the supply of housing very low in places like Berkeley and uh, Palo Alto and San Francisco and other places. Now, that's uh, changing slowly right about now as, as quite a bit more housing is being built. And in fact, the rents aren't as bad now as they have been at certain points not too long ago when the housing was tighter. I know that you recently went to New Orleans. I wonder if you could speak about what's developing there in terms of uh, new ecological ways of approaching building a city or rebuilding a city. I think the really interesting thing about New Orleans, and it's, it's, a, it's a disaster uh, to visit, by the way. It's very stark and moving and, and saddening experience to go there and see what's happened to the people there. But it was built in a way that almost nobody talks about, which is the way of the automobile. And if you're going to have a city that's designed that's scattered out over vast areas and you try to defend that vast vast area as you do there with 350 miles of, uh, of levees, it's hard to maintain that much. And everybody's below sea level. Something about that doesn't make much sense. Um, the entire city is located in a difficult location, but it's interesting that the American Indians who lived in the region and up and down the Mississippi would build on natural mounds, the levees along the edge of the water, but they would actually make those mounds higher. In baskets, they would bring earth in and build it higher and higher and were much more secure because of that. It's a very simple solution. Artificial landfill, you'd say. Well, if you have a pedestrian city, it takes up much less land than a city that's built for automobiles, like most of New Orleans was. So you have a very vulnerable situation in New Orleans where lower-income people are living in relatively flimsy houses scattered all over the landscape, protected by a very, very long set of levees. However, if you were to do like the Indians and build mounds there and build on top of the mounds, in other words, elevate uh, certain sections of the city, and live in apartments and condominiums instead of scattered single-family homes, your perimeter with the storm would be much, much smaller. So after going there and seeing what's happening, uh, I can understand why so many people would say, well, let the people come back and live where they want uh, as they can. Very, very difficult to do. Uh, there isn't. If they're going to spend money to help people do that, why not spend money to help do it in a way that they don't have to evacuate next time? They're actually raised up somewhat above the level of the water. 
uh, like the Indians did. And in fact, there's actually several really excellent models there. One is the University of New Orleans, which is built on about 15 feet of fill. The result is that it was one of the schools that had the least damage in the hurricane. It simply uh, was above the level of the floods. When in 1900, there was uh, the worst natural catastrophe in terms of death in the United States history, a hurricane went into Galveston and drowned between 6,000 and 12,000 people. It's a little bit difficult to get really accurate numbers for many reasons there. But when they built that town back, they raised it from 2 to 20 feet higher by using the dredgings from the bottom of uh, Galveston Bay. Uh, so... Uh, it can be done. It's been done a long time ago. But the interesting thing is that these sprawled out cities are the largest cause of climate change that we have because cars consume all that energy because of scattered single houses. If you cool them or heat them, you get one use out of that cooling or heating energy and then it escapes into the atmosphere. If you have apartments or condominiums, it doesn't work like that. You conserve all that energy. And in addition, the transportation system can work very well. New Orleans has this, this great uh, streetcar system, which is very famous and well-known. Streetcar named Desire is set in New Orleans, of course. Uh, <clears throat> and they could run with that. They could have the compact development as they had in the French Quarter, pedestrian area. But think in terms of the, the larger pedestrian areas, and maybe the suburbs could become islands that are elevated. Uh, lower Ninth could move to the Upper Ninth in the sense of, the sense of being lifted about 15 or 20 feet and uh, could stay there another hundred, couple hundred years. But you have to actually design the city so that it works like that. Well, having been raised as a child on the sixth floor of an apartment building, I felt that I was very deprived of the natural world from that. And that's how I think of apartment and condo living, that it's even further alienating to the inhabitants uh, from nature. I don't quite agree with that because when you work with the whole city and you think of the collective, when you think of a lot of people working together, it's not me in my backyard so much as it's, gee, what can we do about a community garden? For example, I've been living in apartments for many years in Berkeley and Oakland, live in downtown Oakland now, lived in apartments in Berkeley a number of times too. And I have community gardens I go to. For example, we, re we restored with various of our friends at Urban Creeks Council and my colleagues in Eco City Builders a block of two different creeks at two different times in the history of Berkeley. One was Strawberry Creek at Strawberry Creek uh, Park, uh, and another was uh, Codonesis Creek on the border with Albany at University Village. And that's a really beautiful site. I'm there every Sunday. Uh, it's a garden open to everybody. It's the only orchard that I know of in either of the cities. It's open to people to wander through with 26 trees in it and all sorts of fruit. We have wonderful uh, insects and birds that visit constantly. We have salamanders and crawdads and fish and everything. And so that's become available because of the collective effort. It's not stuck in your backyard where you have total control like Americans want and where you can amass many material things. It's out in the public realm. And so you have all these rough edges. You have a little bit of vandalism. But on the other hand, you have people donating beautiful plants. So it's, it's a whole different world. And it's much more natural because the creek runs right through it. So if listeners wanted to go there, could you tell us exactly where that is? It sounds like a very family-friendly Oh, sure, place. yeah, it really is. Uh, it's on the southern edge of University Village, and that's the border of Albany and Berkeley. 
If you imagine going to Gilman and 8th, you would go north two blocks, and there's a parking lot there at the edge of University Village, and that's exactly where the creek is. If you'd like to join us there, uh, there are several of us almost every Sunday, 95% of the time or better, between 11 and 1. And we putter around uh, trimming the trees and putting in occasional plants and just generally enjoying the place, taking care of it. And people can find you on the Internet, of course. Yes, sure. EcoCityBuilders.org Good, good. People will want to find you, I know. Do you think you could read us some from your book? You have such a marvelous writing style. And incidentally, I wish this were television so people could see your beautiful, beautiful drawings that run all the way through this book. Now, I never say you wish it were television. <laughs> but anyway, well, let's see. Um, I'll just tell you, you asked about the origins of this idea. Back around 19, uh, early 1970s, I was very interested in solar and recycling and all these environmental issues. But let me read you just one little bit here because not so much it's the best of my writing, but because it tells you something about one of the things I think we have to learn. And that is that in, uh, in 1971, I interviewed scientist Aidan Meinel, who had recently directed the construction of Kitt Peak National Observatory. I went to Arizona to cover his story uh, for West Magazine of the Los Angeles Times. One thing that struck in my mind was his warning that we needed to spend a fair fraction of our fossil fuel endowment putting into place a remarkable, or rather a renewable energy system. We couldn't wait until oil became expensive. We'd need too much of it. His favorite solar system was something he liked to call a solar energy farm with reflectors to send light to a central boiler and generate steam and turn a turbine and generate electricity. He said we'd have to melt lots of glass to build a massive infrastructure for renewable energy systems because we, not the geology of the Earth, over 100 to 200 million years it took to make the fossil fuels, would need to gather the con- and concentrate the energy ourselves. That year, 1971, was coincidentally the same year that oil production peaked in the United States, though I had no idea about it at the time. It is now 35 years later. No such investment in renewable energy has been made. That's not all. The physical infrastructure of cities, towns, and villages designed to fit renewable energy systems has also not been built. It's not even being planned and only visualized in a few rare places such as this book. I think we're facing uh, a, a colossal emergency right now. You get some hint of it from Al Gore's new movie, but you get almost no hint of what you can do about it. We're coming up to a point of history where something so large and overwhelmingly powerful is about to overwhelm us here that if we don't get away from the idea that this is going to be solved simply, we're in serious trouble. I think we have to recognize we need to make some very, very major changes and start reshaping the cities we're living in. And do you have any final words? Final words. I certainly hope that you will all enjoy the environment you live in, and I would make the suggestion that one of the very best ways to do that is to think about uh, think about the way the city really works and how you can make it much more ecologically healthy. Well, I think one reason for checking this book out is that you actually visually get to see that because of these incredibly imaginative drawings that uh, show you a city that that looks more like a, a park or a garden and 
their 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 mind opening to what a city could be like. Where can people find the book? Well, I hope at all the bookstores fairly soon. I just got my first shipment from Canada. It's uh, produced by New Society Publishers out of Gabriola Island, a little rural island out in the middle of nowhere in the Pacific. But in any case, uh, they publish really good books, and it should be at the bookstores fairly soon. If not, you can always order it from them. Well, let me give the title of the book again. It's called Eco Cities, Rebuilding Cities in Balance with Nature. And it's written by Richard Register, which is spelled just how it sounds. And you can also reach him at ecocitybuilders.org. I'm sorry, ecocitybuilders.org. E-C-O-C-I-T-Y-B-U-I-L-D-E-R-S dot org. Well, thank you very much, Richard, for being here. And I hope everybody gets to enjoy your book as much as I did. Well, thank you very much. And thank you all for listening. This has been Nina Serrano for Cover to Cover, Open Book. Have a very nice day. There are still some beautiful spots on Earth, like Loblolly Cove. This song, written and sung by Phil Serrano, about Loblolly Cove in Massachusetts, where we just sprinkled the ashes of our parents. Where the blue waters run, white pebbles bake in the sun. And the waves roar with laughter It's a magic place With the wind in my face I feel so high in love, love, cold In the cool sandy bay There's breath in the tide Under the moonlight And the morning air is still Set the herring gulls shrill And you know by her cry That it's alright It's alright The hemlock makes shelter from northeast winds Not the weather that batters our dreams Is a fool, a dreamer, who lives in his dream A world where he can be free
is a fool a dreamer who lives in his dream a world where he can be free and the mist fills the sky and time slowly drifts on by two rainbow sounds of surf and thirsty shoreline and the foghorn growls away his blindness of the day and you know by his cry that it's all right it's all right about getting unheard voices and community concerns on the radio? Do you want to get more involved with KPFA? Now's the time. KPFA is having elections for its board of directors this fall, and several seats are available for listener representatives. Help guide this organization from the grassroots, from neighborhood organizing to international news reporting, from bluegrass to rap, from Watsonville to Sacramento. Your fresh, local, community-based organizing and administrative experience is what we want. If you or someone you know is interested in KPFA's board, write to us at ballot at kpfa.org. That's B-A-L-L-O-T at kpfa.org. Or call 510-848-6767, extension 266, for more information. With independent media, we can change the world. And you're listening to 94.1 KPFA in Berkeley, 